It's an honor to be up here this morning. Isn't this amazing to have these guys here with us today? We're going to do a check here in just a moment, a technical check to make sure Dr. Turek can hear us. But before we do that, I want to waste no time. I'm going to get to our intro and then get straight to our questions, okay, because we got quite a few of those. Speaking of, if you have questions during the session that you want to send up here, you should have that little form. It looks like this. Feel free to fill one of those out and get them up here to me, and I will try my best to include those, okay? But our time is limited, just so you know. All right, here is a brief bio for Dr. Frank Turek. He is the president of crossexamined.org and the host of an hour-long TV program each week called I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist, which is based on his best-selling book that he co-authored with Norm Geisler. I highly encourage you to pick that up. It's an awesome book. He is a dynamic speaker indeed, an award-winning author, co-author of several books. Uh, he, as the president of Cross-Examine, he presents powerful and entertaining evidence for Christianity at churches, high schools, and at secular college campuses that often be, uh, begin hostile to his message, the message of the gospel. If you want to check those out, they're all over YouTube. Just uh, Google Dr. Frank Turek. He has also debated several prominent atheists, including Christopher Hitchens, who's no longer on this planet, uh, David Silverman, who's president of American Atheists. These are heavyweights in the atheist world, but no match for Dr. Frank Turek. So would you Help me in giving a very warm welcome this morning to Dr. Frank Turek. There he is. Howdy, folks. Dr. Turek, just want to make sure that you can hear me okay. I got you. Go ahead. Awesome. Fantastic. Well, we are honored to have you here with us this morning, sir. And we do have some questions for you, but wanted to give you an opportunity if you had any opening remarks, any introduction that you wanted to say. Yeah, you've got the great Gary Habermas there this week. You don't need me. Gary is the man. <laughs> You're going to enjoy Gary. I know he got in a little bit late last night, but he's on his way over there. Hey, when you get a chance, I want you to ask Gary about snakes, all right? <laughs> ask him about snakes because Gary claims to be an expert in snakes. In fact, one one. One time I was introducing Gary, and uh, I said, you know, when Gary comes over to our house, he goes snake hunting with our kids, and he hunts snakes. In fact, he's, he's been bitten over 200 times, and one guy said, that's an expert? <laughs> that's great. He's got a little Pentecostal blood in him, huh? That's right. He's, he handles it. He, I guess he thinks the end of Mark is really in there. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, Dr. Turek, we have well, probably two to 300 folks out here who are eager to get to these questions. So if that's okay with you, we'll go ahead and begin with our first one. All right. This is, how would I explain the inerrancy of scriptures to a non-believer? You don't. It's not required. In fact, uh, inerrancy is a conclusion. It's not a premise. Um, in fact, let me put it this way. This is going to sound heretical to um, people who believe in it like I do, but it's not. Um, Christianity is not true because a series of documents 
that we put under one binding called the Bible says it's true. Christianity is true because an event occurred, the resurrection. There would be no New Testament if it wasn't for the resurrection. In fact, do you realize that there were thousands of Christians before a line of the New Testament was ever written? Of course. I mean, Paul was a Christian before the New Testament was ever written. Why was he a Christian? Because he witnessed the Jesus. Same thing with John. Same thing with Peter. Same thing with the other apostles. They were Christians because they witnessed him resurrected from the dead. In fact, this is going to sound even more crazy, but I think it's true. Christianity would still be true if the Bible never existed. Now, we wouldn't know much about it, obviously. God saw it fit to inspire the writers to write down what they saw, but it would still be true if they never wrote it down because it's based on an historical event. So you don't need inerrancy to show that Christianity is true. You don't need to believe inerrancy to be a Christian. I think you're illogical to a certain extent if you don't. Why? Why, why do I believe in inerrancy? Because Jesus taught inerrancy. Just if the documents are historically reliable, you know, they don't have to be perfect in every facet. But if, if, if we know what Jesus taught because the documents are historically reliable, Jesus taught the entire Old Testament is the word of God and he promised the New Testament. So on Jesus's authority, I believe in inerrancy. And I just kind of have a personal policy that if anybody rises from the dead, I just believe whatever the guy says. All right. <laughs> Good idea. So, but now in our book, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. We, we cover why we think inerrancy is true. But I hasten to add, even if it's not true, Christianity is still true. In fact, when, when Gary comes in, um, Gary will tell you this. I don't want to steal this thunder. But if he doesn't say this, I want you to ask him the question. I want you to ask Gary the same question you just asked me. Because Gary will tell you when students come to him and they say, Oh, Dr. Habermas, I found an error in the Bible. You know what he says? So? What, what follows from that? that? That God doesn't exist or you're not a sinner or Jesus didn't rise from the dead? No, none of that follows from that. Even if there are errors in the text, minor errors, it doesn't mean that the Bible uh, or that the, uh, the, the basic tenets of Christianity, what C.S. Lewis would call mere Christianity, doesn't mean that they're false. Okay, so again, inerrancy is a conclusion. It's not a premise. Never require somebody believe in inerrancy to become a Christian. Why? Because you can spend a lifetime going over different aspects of the text, and there are some problems in the text that you might not be able to resolve. Are you then going to keep somebody out of the kingdom because you can't resolve a particular passage you're not quite sure of? No, I think that's 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 crazy. So uh, if you're really interested in the topic in inerrancy to a, to, to a more a deeper degree, I'd highly recommend you get this book, When Critics Asked, by my co-author, Dr. Norman Geisler. It's now called The Big Book of Bible Difficulties. It goes into uh, 800 supposed uh, problems in the text. And, and let me mention one other thing. Differences are not always contradictions. So you can have differences and not have contradictions. In fact, if you didn't have differences, uh, people would think that the New Testament writers colluded about everything. Eyewitnesses always agree on the main facts, but they disagree over the details. And that's exactly what we see 
in the New Testament documents. So to sum it all up, the, the, the key point is the resurrection. If Jesus rose from the dead, Christianity is true. And the New Testament writers did not create the resurrection. The resurrection created the New Testament writers. There would be no New Testament because it was written down mostly by Jewish folks who had no motive to invent a resurrected Jesus. They already thought they were God's chosen people. They never would have invented a resurrected Jesus and then go die for it if it didn't happen. So you don't need inerrancy to be a Christian. I think it's the right conclusion if you are a Christian, but you don't need it to be a Christian. Thank you, Dr. Turk. And just as an add-on to that, could you also speak to a little bit about the internal integrity of the scriptures and the manuscripts? And I believe there's a 99.6 accuracy uh, to those. Is that correct? Yeah, that's uh, uh, probably from my friend Dan Wallace, who teaches at, uh, at Dallas Theological Seminary. Dan is the, the real expert on the manuscript evidence. And in fact, uh, he's teaching a course for us now. If you go to crossexamine.org and click on online courses, you'll see it there. Dan uh, says that the, the main problem is, it's not that we have uh, too little of the Bible. We have too much of the Bible. There's, there's some variant readings that we can't completely reconcile, and we're not exactly sure if it should be in the text or not, like I hinted at earlier when we were talking about the end of the Gospel of Mark from verse 9 to 20. Should that really be in there or not? Because it's only in later manuscripts. So we have too much Bible, not too little. But yes, it's so accurate. Check this out. It is so accurate. I got to find something here. I, I like to show you guys books that, um, I don't know if I can find uh, Bart Ehrman's book. I'm sure you've heard of Bart Ehrman, who wrote the book, um, who wrote the book, Misquoting Jesus. You know, he's a skeptic and he he writes this book that tries to get people to believe that we can't reconstruct the New Testament documents. It's called Misquoting Jesus. Well, it turns out that he actually agrees you can reconstruct the New Testament documents because in the second edition of Misquoting Jesus, he's interviewed in the, at the end of the book, and he basically says that I agree with Bruce Metzger. Well, who's Bruce Metzger? Bruce Metzger was the top manuscript scholar of the last century. He mentored Ehrman. And he and Metzger actually wrote a book in 2005, the same year that Ehrman put out Misquoting Jesus. He wrote a book about the New Testament documents. He updated Metzger's classic work on it. And in that work, they conclude, yeah, we know what the New Testament documents originally said. The same year, he writes Misquoting Jesus to a general public, and he tries to hint at the idea that, oh, we're not quite sure what the New Testament documents said. But in that interview... In the second edition, he admits, yeah, I agree with Bruce Metzger. The New Testament tradition is not in any way compromised by uh, New Testament variants. So the book should not be called Misquoting Jesus. The book should be called Misquoting Ehrman. <laughs> Very good. Thank you. Dr. Turk, we're going to shift to a, a hard subject, uh, maybe not for you, but for many Christians, and that's the question of evil. And we have quite a few questions on that. The first one is, if God exists and is good, why doesn't he stop disaster and evil in the world? Yeah, it's an excellent question. I, I was at Michigan State a number of years ago doing our I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist presentation, and um, I knew there was a militant atheist in the audience because he sat in the audience for the entire two-hour presentation like this. He didn't crack a smile once. And I had some pretty good jokes in there. Um, anyway, as soon as the Q&A started, his hand shot up. I, I pointed at him. I said, yes, sir, go ahead. And he said, um, 
If there is a good God in the world, if there is a good God, why doesn't he stop all the evil in the world? And I said, sir, that is an excellent question. Maybe because if he did, he might start with you and me because we do evil every day. You ever notice that when we're um, thinking about evil, we're always thinking about somebody else doing evil. Why don't you stop him? Why don't you stop her? We never think of ourselves. If God wanted to stop all the evil in the world, he could right away, but he might start with us because we use our free will for evil every day. So God could stop all the evil, but then this would fail to be a moral world because he gives us free will in order to, to love and to do moral things. But unfortunately, free will can also be used to do evil. So God created the, the um, possibility of evil, but we actualize evil by, by choosing evil to, to get something we want. Now, um, I normally show a little video that shows people this concept, and it's, it's such a big concept, or it's such a big issue, evil, that obviously in a Q&A format, we can't cover it all. But let me just say one thing about evil. Evil does not disprove God. In fact, it's impossible to show that God doesn't exist through evil. Why? Because evil wouldn't exist unless good existed, and good wouldn't exist unless God existed. You see, evil doesn't exist on its own. Evil is, is, is a privation or a lack in a good thing. Evil is like rust in a car. If you take all the rust out of, out of the car, you got a better car. If you take all the car out of the rust, you got nothing. You know, you just got a rust spot on the pavement, right? Uh, evil is like cancer. If you take all the cancer out of a body, you got a better body. If you take all the body out of the cancer, you got nothing. In other words, evil doesn't exist on its own. It only exists as a lack in a good thing. Well, good, objectively speaking, can only exist if God exists because by definition, what we mean by good is the nature of God. Otherwise, everything's just a matter of opinion. It's just your opinion against somebody else's opinion. If there isn't a standard of goodness or righteousness or justice that transcends human beings, then nothing is ultimately good or evil. But everybody knows certain things are good or evil. Everyone knows that, say, torturing babies for fun is wrong. Everybody knows that walking into a school and shooting up school children is wrong. If that's wrong, there must be something that's right. And that rightness is God's nature. So evil doesn't disprove God. It may prove there's a devil out there, but it can't disprove God because there'd be no such thing as evil unless there was good, and there'd be no such thing as good unless God existed. Now, there's so many different directions we could take this at this point. Uh, I've written a book called Stealing from God, Why Atheists Need God to Make Their Case. It, it goes into that topic quite a bit if you want to go further in it, or if you want to ask a follow-on question to that, now we can. Yeah, actually I would. Uh, and I wouldn't ask this of you unless I knew you could handle it. But you mentioned the torturing of babies. So why does there seem to be an apparent contradiction in terms of God nature with his command and condoning of not maybe the torture of babies, but the killing of babies and the, conqu the conquest of the Holy Land? Yeah, uh, speaking of the Canaanites, you mean? Correct. Yeah, well, we're about out of time. I'm sorry. <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> I've heard other students ask you that on college campuses, and you got a bang-up answer. So, Okay, a couple of things we need to keep in mind when we look at an issue like that. First of all, as I just said, if an atheist brings it up, I always ask the atheist, so what's your standard for judging God in the Old Testament? And an honest atheist will say, well, I don't have a standard because God doesn't exist, so everything's subjective. 
But he can say, and it's a good tactic for an atheist to say, yeah, but it's a problem for you as a Christian. If you're going to claim God is good, why does he kill children in the Old Testament? Right? It's a good question. So the first question I normally ask people is, when God decides to judge people in the Old Testament, does he give reasons or is it just like he's a mafia boss? He wakes up one morning and says, Canaanites, I want them dead. No, he gives reasons. In fact, there's 400 years worth of reasons, according to the Old Testament. These Canaanites were involved in all sorts of, of horrific practices, including the sacrifice of their own children to a metal idol by the name of Molech. It was this kind of bullheaded thing that was made out of metal, and it had arms that were held out like this. I don't know if you can see my arms, but they're held out like this. And they would heat this idol up, and then they would put their babies, as old as four years old, on this, these arms of this idol, and they would basically sizzle the child to death. Plutarch, a Greek writer, writes that, so this isn't just in the Bible, this is actually in other writers, that the, the drum players in these villages, in these Canaanite villages, would play the drums louder so, their, so the parents of these children couldn't hear the screams of their own children. Now, on every college campus I go to, I hear atheists say, well, if there is a good God, why doesn't he stop all the evil in the world? Well, here's an instance where God says, I'm going to jump in and stop it, and the atheists are complaining about it. You know, like, well, you can't have it both ways. You want him to stop it or not? And they'll say, well, wait a minute. Yeah, he stopped it, but he went too far because then he killed children. God did. You know, he could have just stopped the adults and that would have been righteous, but he, he goes on to kill the children. That doesn't seem right. Okay, let's look at that problem. Now, there's two views on this among evangelical scholars. One view is put forth by Paul Copan. Do you guys know who Paul Copan is? Some. You heard of Paul Copan? He's written a book called Is God a Moral Monster? I'm looking at looking for it on my shelf right now. Oh, there it is right there. This is the book. You guys seen this book right here? Is God a Moral Monster? It's a great book. Paul deals not only with this issue, but several other issues in the Old Testament in particular. And Paul's point is, if you read one of the passages like, say, Deuteronomy 7, it'll say something like, okay, wipe everybody out. And in the very next verse, it'll say, and then don't intermarry with them. And you're going, wait a minute. How can, if you're wiping everybody out, why would you have a command after that to not intermarry with them? If they're all dead, you can't intermarry with them. What's the point? And Copan's point is, many of these commands appear to be hyperbolic. In other words, they're exaggerations for effect. Like we might say, well, we annihilated the other team. Really? They no longer exist? No, they're still there. We just beat them badly. And he says that's the kind of language that's often used, not only in the Bible, but in other ancient Near East texts. They exaggerate for effect. So Copan is saying, look, it probably was never the case that these were literal commands to wipe everybody out, the women and the children. They were exaggerated commands. And the real command was to push these people out of the land so the Israelites could get in the land and bring forth the promised uh, people to bring forth the promised Messiah. Now, Clay Jones, who teaches at Biola, says, no, I don't agree with that. I think that these were literal commands to wipe everybody out. Let's just let's go with Clay Jones's interpretation because it's a harder interpretation. Let's say God really commanded the death of everybody in this community. Here's my question. When God kills somebody, is it murder for God? 
Is it? No. No, God, God can't murder anyone. Why? Because God's the giver of life. God can resurrect life anytime he wants. He's the giver. He's the taker. He can do whatever he wants with life. We can't take innocent life because we're not God. I mean, you hear the term all, you hear this term quite a bit, play God. Don't play God. What does that mean? Well, it implies, first of all, that God can play God. In other words, that God has the authority to take life when he wants to take it. And the point here is, is that if, if God, as Clay Jones points out, says that these people um, should be judged regardless of what age they are, this whole community needs to be judged, God has the authority to take people. In fact, think about it this way. If Christianity is true, people don't really die. They just change location. They go from this life to the next life. Now, God can take somebody's life anytime he wants. He can take your life at two years old or 82 years old. That's up to him. And so if these are literal commands, God has the authority to take life. Now, I, I hasten to add that these commands were for, for a very short period of time for a very specific reason. These are not like Islamic jihad, which says go and kill everybody who's not a believer. These were very specific commands for a very specific instance, judging people based on the horrific practices that they were practicing. Now, let me, let me add one other thing. I had this question at Central Oklahoma University not long ago. In fact, you can go to YouTube and see it. A young lady got up to the microphone and was saying, look, I can't believe in a good God because uh, the God of the Bible, because, you know, he does this stuff in the Old Testament. And I asked her this question. I said, I understand it is a hard problem. I agree with you. But let me ask you this question. Do you consider yourself pro-life or pro-abortion? And she said, oh, well, well, I'm pro-abortion. I'm, you know, I'm pro-choice and all this. And I said, forgive me for saying this, but let me ask you this. Why is it that when God plays God in the Old Testament and he decides who lives and who dies, that's immoral. But when you play God here today, and you decide who lives and who dies through abortion, that's a moral right. Can you justify that for me? Exactly. No, she couldn't. We want to play God all the time, but we get, we get upset when God plays God. Fantastic. So, again, if you want to go further on that problem, no, no, it's a big great. problem. You know, I gave a couple of answers here. Get Copan's book, Is God a Moral Monster? And then look up Clay Jones on the Internet because Clay writes on this as well. Wonderful. Dr. Turk, let's shift to the moral argument now. This question says, when people use the quote-unquote herd mentality, in other words, we do good to one another for the survival of our species or herd, as a rebuttal to the morality argument, what should we say? Oh, that's an excellent question that C.S. Lewis, of course, has already dealt with. In fact, if you look at um, mere Christianity, I think that's where he deals with this. He says it can't be a herd mentality. Why? Well, there's a number of reasons. I'll just give you Lewis's answer first. Um, he says that if, I think he gives the example of somebody drowning. He says, imagine you see somebody drowning and, um, or let me, let me give you even another example. I think he uses drowning. He might use mugging too. Let's use the mugging example. Let's suppose you see somebody being mugged, right? You've probably got two competing instincts. Like one says, hey, go help that guy. Uh, and the other instinct says, no, don't get involved. You'll get hurt yourself. In fact, you might want to run away from this situation. And Lewis points out that actually you probably have a stronger instinct for self-preservation than you do to help somebody. 
But he says, then there's kind of a third thing that comes in and says, you ought to do the, the first. You ought to go help the person. In fact, you ought to do what you don't want to do. <laughs> you ought to help the person. And, he, and Lewis says that that third thing that comes in can't be one of the two instincts. It's got to be a third thing that says you ought to help the other person. Now, that third thing is what Lewis and others would call the moral law. It's uh, our conscience that God is telling us you ought to go help the mugger, despite the fact that you might have a stronger urge to run away and save yourself. So that can't be one of the two instincts. It's not just a herd mentality. And I deal with this quite a bit in both books. I don't have enough faith to be an atheist and stealing from God. But let me point out that regardless of any scenario atheists come up with to try and explain why we do good and why we do evil, they often, they often make the mistake of confusing how we know something with that something is good. In other words, they confuse epistemology, that's how you know right from wrong, from ontology, which is the study of why something is right or wrong, or the study of being. So atheists will say, and Christopher Hitchens said this in our debates. You guys know who Christopher Hitchens was? Yes, sir. Christopher Hitchens was a brilliant British atheist, and he sounded even more brilliant than he was because he had a British accent. <laughs> anyway, Hitchens would, you know, during our debate say, well, are you claiming I'm not a good guy? Or are you claiming I'm a bad person? Are you claiming that I don't know morality? I said, no, 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 I'm not claiming any of that. I'm not saying you're a bad guy. I'm not saying you can't, you can't live a good life. I'm not saying any of that. What I am saying is you can't justify what good is. Because if there is no standard beyond yourself, then everything is just a matter of personal opinion. You can't judge the Nazis if there's no standard beyond you and the Nazis, that's just your opinion. So uh, we're not talking about how you know right from wrong. We're not talking about whether or not you have to believe in God to be a good person or anything. That's not, that's not the issue. The issue is why does this thing called goodness actually exist and why are we obligated to follow it? If there's no God, that doesn't exist and you have no obligation to follow anything. So... I always get back to that distinction between epistemology and ontology. Don't confuse those two. They're important. Both are important, but in fact, I had a debate with Michael Shermer not long ago, and he kept saying, well, how do you get at this? How do you get at this, uh, this moral code you're talking about? You know, how do you know right from wrong? I said, Michael, I don't know why you're asking that question. You already know right from wrong. Why are you asking how I know right from wrong? I said, you don't even need the Bible to know right from wrong. It's written on your hearts. The question isn't whether or not you can know right and wrong. Everyone can know it, whether or not they have a Bible, whether they're a Christian or not. The question is, what is rightness? What is, what is justice ontologically? And I said, you ought to be asking yourself that question, Michael, how you can know it. Because if you're just a molecular machine, if you're just a moist robot, because he's a materialist, if you're just a molecular machine, why should you believe anything you think? Including the thought that, Loving somebody's good and hating somebody's bad, including the thought that atheism's true. I mean, if you're just a molecular machine, why should you believe anything you think? So atheists have to steal from God to even make sense of their position. They have to steal a moral standard from God to try and say that Christianity is immoral. They have, to stay, they have to steal reason from God to say they're much more reasonable. How can they be reasonable if they're just molecular machines, if we're all just moist robots? There's, there is no such thing as reason. We're just reacting. We're no different than a Coke can fizzing. I mean, what's the point? Right. There's no free will in that sense. 
All right. There's no free will, but there's, there's no, there's no immaterial reality. Right. So you, justice, which is not made of materials, doesn't exist then. I mean, think about this. I always ask atheists this question. I say, how much carbon is in the justice molecule? And they go, well, that's kind of a, what do you mean carbon? And well, you're a materialist, yet you believe in justice. So what is justice materially? And they have no answer. Why? Because it's not a material thing. It's an immaterial thing, which is telling me and should be telling them that materialism's false because there's a lot of things that are immaterial that we all know exist. Justice is one of them. Love is another thing. The laws of logic. These are all immaterial things that we traffic in every day and atheists just take for granted. They have to steal from God in order to try and say he doesn't exist. And you cover a lot of this material in your latest book, correct? Stealing from God, is that right? Yeah, Stealing from God, this one right here. So if you're interested in that, pick that up. Okay. And by the way, there's, a, there's even an online course you can take, again, on this class as well. One of the unique things about the courses that we teach is uh, we get the instructors to come on live via Zoom and answer questions, much like we're doing now. So Gary teaches one of the classes, and when we run his class again this fall, Gary will come on on three occasions and answer questions. Um, and, and I do the same thing. So does uh, Dan Wallace and other other instructors, they come on and answer questions live, which makes it a lot of fun. Wonderful. So you mentioned uh, the Muslims uh, in your last answer, I think, at the beginning. A question about them is, how would you explain the Trinity to a Muslim? I would explain the Trinity the same way that uh, they explain the Quran. Because a Muslim will say the Quran is eternal, which means there's something independent of God their monotheistic version of God that they think exists eternally. Um, well, why are you putting partners? The, the big sin in Islam is called shirk. That means you're putting partners with God. You're putting a book along with God. You're saying that the book exists eternally just like it exists, um, just like uh, God exists. Well, it, it, it's kind of ironic when you think about it that in... in uh, the Muslims will say, well, you know, God can't become man. That, that's blasphemous. But they're basically saying God became a book, became the Quran. Um, also, I think you have to try and ask Muslims what they think the Trinity is. Because I asked an imam once, I said, what do you think the Trinity is? He said, well, the Trinity is God having sex with Mary to give us Jesus. That's what he thought the Trinity was. And so... If he has a false belief about what the Trinity is, then he's probably not going to believe it's true. I, w I don't believe that's true, right? You know, tell me about the Trinity. That's your concept of the Trinity? Well, I don't believe that concept either. So I would point out a couple of things. I would also point out that the Trinity, three persons in one divine essence, actually solves problems rather than creating them. Why? Because if God is eternal and he is, how could there be love if he was a strictly monotheistic being? There's nobody to love before there was a creation, right? But God was uh, perfectly loving because he was in the Godhead. He had a father, a son, and a Holy Spirit, three persons in one divine essence. So there was a lover, a loved one, and a spirit of love from all eternity. God did not have to create because he was lonely or anything. He, he had perfect fellowship in the Trinity. So I think the Trinity actually solves problems, theological problems, rather than creates them. Now, it doesn't mean everyone completely understands the Trinity or we understand it completely, but we want to expect that. In fact, 
If God is infinite, and he is, we should expect an infinite God to be strange to us. It would be strange if an infinite God wasn't strange. C.S. Lewis, I think also in Mere Christianity, says, Muslims will claim, well, Islam is much more simple, right? You know, it's... Uh, it's just one God. That's it. You don't have to worry about any, anything else. We believe in one God, too. We just think there's, there's some plurality in the Godhead. Um, but Lewis goes on to say, well, how can we compete in simplicity for people who are making up religions? The truth is strange. I think he gives the illustration of a table. He says, if you're looking at a table, you, you just might look at the table and say, well, it's just, you know, a top and four legs. It's not very complicated. But if he said, if you started to look at the molecular structure of that table and go down to the subatomic or the atomic level, you're going to say, wow, this thing is really complicated. Yeah, the truth is often quite complicated. Um, and we can't compete with people who are making up religions. We're just reporting the truth as it has been revealed to us. Very good. So, Dr. Kirk, Kirk I have a question for you about the hiddenness of God, and this is kind of a two-part question, mm -hmm. specifically as it relates to those who claim they would believe if they had more direct evidence. That's part one. Part two is mm -hmm. also regarding those believers who long to have a more tangible relationship with the Lord. Mm -hmm. Can you speak to those mm -hmm. two points regarding the hiddenness of God? Yeah, that's a great question, the hiddenness of God. I think it was, um, I think probably the best sort of um, perspective on it was actually put forth by Soren Kierkegaard, a 19th century Danish philosopher. And he gave a story. He said, imagine that a prince um, in a jurisdiction sees a beautiful young woman who's a peasant in his jurisdiction from a distance, and he immediately falls in love with her. But he has a problem. He knows that if he goes to her as the prince, that she might just acquiesce to his power and just accept his proposal because she really wants to be the queen and she doesn't really love him for who he is. So he goes to his father, the king, and he says, Father, what should I do? I really love this woman, but if I go to her as the prince, I'm... She's, she may just acquiesce to my power. I'm never going to know if she really loves me. She's not going to know if she really loves me. This power is going to get in the way. So the father says to the king, or father says to the prince, there's only one way, son. If you want this to happen, you've got to have to, you're going to have to renounce the throne and go to her as a peer. Go to her as a peasant. And so he does. He renounces the throne. He becomes a peasant himself. He goes into her village and he wins her as a peer. Then they know that their love is true. And this is kind of what Jesus does for us. He comes down from heaven. He adds humanity over his deity. And he comes to our level and wins us as a peer. He doesn't overpower us with his presence. Because God isn't just interested in the intellectual assent that God exists or that Jesus rose from the dead. That's simply belief that. In fact, James, the half-brother of Jesus, who wrote that little book in the New Testament called? James. Called? James. James! Thank you. Thank you very much. Just want to make sure you guys are awake. You can't um, hear them out there, probably. 
Yes, so I James speak for them. said that even the demons believe that God exists, but they tremble. They know intellectually better than we do that God exists. But God just doesn't want a intellectual assent. He wants a volitional love relationship. And so in order to be saved, you have to go from belief that to belief in. And to do that, you've got to have, a, you've got to have freedom. It can't be coerced. If God were to overpower us with his presence all the time, We'd have no real choice but to just acquiesce to his power. But God gives us enough freedom and enough evidence to know that he exists without compelling belief. So that's one answer to the hiddenness of God question. Uh, there's many others as well, but I just find that to be intuitively um, satisfying that God is not going to overpower us with his presence. He's going to give us enough freedom and enough ambiguity to go our own way if we want to, but he's also going to give us enough evidence to trust in him if we truly do love him. I mean, by the way, we, we know this, this difference between belief that and belief in from relationships. Like, for example, when I first met my wife 32 years ago, I got evidence that she would be a good wife. But all the evidence in the world didn't make her my wife. I had to take a step of trust in her to ask her to be my wife. And in a momentary lapse of judgment, she said yes. <laughs> See, that's the difference between belief that and belief in. So, yeah, God can um, overpower us with his presence, but he's not going to get the kind of relationship he wants from us. Anyway, hang on one second here for uh, a second. I have to look for something. Because C.S. Lewis, as always, has dealt with this problem himself, and he dealt with it in the first screw tape letter. And I, I can't find it off my shelf right now, but he says something like this. He says, the indisputable, uh, meaning like an indisputable display of his power, is something that God can't use. He says, God can only woo. He cannot ravish. Because if he ravishes, then he interferes with our free choice. And that's not the kind of relationship he's interested in anyway. Good. So speaking of, to the, the tangibility of having a personal relationship with the Lord, would you say that even though God is spirit, there still is an internal testimony for the believer that you can have that that relationship with the Almighty God, even though he's not physical? Yes, well, I think there is a witness of the Holy Spirit, certainly. I think that witness does witness to our spirit that we are children of God. But that you can know Christianity is true that way, but as my friend William Lane Craig says, you can't show it that way, right? There's a difference between knowing right. Christianity is true and showing Christianity is true. Showing Christianity is true is giving evidence that God exists, that Jesus rose from the dead, that the scriptures are telling us the truth about what happened to Jesus and all that. That's belief that. But right. I can't show the witness of the Holy Spirit because it's internal to me. It's in, it's, it's in me. It's not something that uh, you can witness yourself. Well, you may be able to witness a life change, but um, you can't have that same sense if you're an unbeliever until you experience rebirth yourself. Right. Very good. So just a couple more questions. Uh, what about the, the person who has never heard or been able to hear the gospel message? Are they still accountable for their sins on the day of judgment? 
Yeah, excellent question. Um, in fact, let's say that, let's point out, first of all, that there's nobody out there who's never heard of God. Everybody knows there's a God. Why? Because of creation and conscience. God's written two books. He's written the Bible, obviously, but he's also written the book of nature. And that includes creation and conscience. So we reason from effect to cause. So we have an effect called creation. We know there must be a cause out there. We have an effect called a moral law written on our hearts. We know there must be a moral law giver. So everybody intuitively understands there's a creator God and we've fallen short of his moral standard. Now, there are many people who have never heard of Jesus. So what happens in that situation? And of course, Christians disagree over this as well. But let me give you what I think is the, the proper view here. Um, first of all, notice this is a moral question. Do you see that it's somebody brings it up is in some way um, bringing it up because he thinks, well, if Jesus is the only way, somehow God is unfair, unjust, not right. Well, again, the only way fairness could exist if, is if God exists. So you're kind of using, you're stealing from God to argue against him. Um, what you could say is, you could say, okay, um, I believe in God, but I, I don't think it's the God of the Bible. Okay, make your case then. The problem is when you try and make your case, you run into the resurrection. How do you explain the resurrection if Jesus is not God? How do you explain the resurrection if there's some other God, some other theistic God other than Christianity? And as Gary will point out to you, the evidence for the resurrection is extremely strong. In fact, it takes more faith to not believe in it than to believe it actually occurred. But I just want to point out it's a moral question. And so many of the questions that you will get about Christianity are moral. They're assuming a moral standard. So you want to always say, hey, you realize you're assuming a moral standard here. Okay, now let's get back to what about those that have never heard. First of all, I think Christ's sacrifice is essential for salvation. Not because it's arbitrary. He doesn't just say, I'm, I'm the only way because I said so. It's because... God is infinitely just, and he's also infinitely loving. The problem is, is if he's infinitely just, he can't allow sin to go unpunished. But he doesn't want to punish us because he's loving. So how does he stay just and love people at the same time? What he does is he punishes an innocent substitute in our place, which turns out to be himself, so he can remain just in the justifier, as Paul says in, in Romans 3.26. Now you say, okay, I can, I can see that that's necessary philosophically and theologically, but we still run into the problem that a lot of people don't seem to hear the name. Are they damned forever because they don't hear the name? Two views on this. C.S. Lewis view says people can come and be saved through the sacrifice of Christ even though they don't know the name. Like the Old Testament saints, right? The Old Testament saints didn't know the name of Jesus. They trusted in Yahweh and they were saved, okay? Is that possible? Sure, it's possible. But the New Testament seems to indicate that you have to know the name. In fact, if you look at um, Acts 10, Cornelius, he's already a believer. Yet God sends Peter over there to tell him about Jesus. Why would he do that if, he, if you could be saved any other way, right? Um, and, but, but then you say, wait, or, or, let me back up. The Bible also says that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. If you take a step toward creation and conscience, if you want to know who God is, the Bible indicates that God will get you the necessary information you need to be saved. Look, God wants people to be saved more than you and I do, right? He wants all to be saved. And so he, he's more concerned about it than we are. So he will get them the word either through a missionary 
or through a dream like many Muslims are getting now uh, or some other means if they don't know who Jesus is at this point. There's one other possibility, however. Let me, let me point out that we all know that people, there are many people that hear the gospel and don't believe, right? Well, it could be the case that people who never hear the gospel wouldn't have believed it anyway. That's possible, right? And if you go to Acts chapter 17, when Paul is talking to the unbelievers on Mars Hill, he says something like this. I don't have it in front of me. It's a paraphrase. He says, he says that God has so prearranged events that people are living at the exact times where they should live so that people would find God and some would believe in him. In other words, it could be that God has so prearranged the world that the people who would accept the gospel are the people who hear it. And the people who never would have accepted the gospel never would have believed it, even if they had heard it. At the end of the day, we can say this. Since God is just, nobody's going to be treated unfairly. Everybody, nope, there's nobody in the afterlife is going to say, I should have been in heaven or I should have been in hell. No one's going to say that. Well, right. We could all say we should have been in hell, but because of Christ's blood, we're not. But nobody who, who winds up in, in hell is going, to, is going to say this was unfair. Amen. Very good. One more question for you, Dr. Tarek. Unfortunately, we're out of time. We could spend the whole day with you. I uh, wanted you to just speak to the, the need for apologetics in the personal spiritual life of a believer. We know how effective apologetics can be in terms of witnessing to, to unbelievers, to people. But speaking from personal experience, I can't tell you how many times uh, the Lord has used apologetics to be a life preserver for me to draw me out of those waters of doubt uh, back to him. So is there anything that you can give in terms of practical uh, application for apologetics in the life of a believer? Yeah, well, a couple of questions that I like to ask people, first of all, who are not believers. I ask this on college campuses all the time when an atheist gets up to a microphone and displays a little bit of hostility. I'll always ask them this question. If Christianity were true, would you become a Christian? And I've had atheists stand at a microphone in front of hundreds of people and say, no. Say, no. I asked you if something were true, would you believe it? And you say, no. How's that reasonable? How's that rational? It's not. The problem isn't here. The problem's here. They don't want it to be true. They're not on a truth quest. They're on a happiness quest. They're just going to believe whatever they think is going to make them happy. Here's the problem. You can make yourself happy over the short term doing a lot of stupid, sinful things. But over the long term, it's a disaster. And everybody out there watching this right now who's over 40 knows what I'm talking about because many of us have tried it, right? Yeah, the only way to get true contentment and happiness is to go straight through truth, and Jesus is the truth. So if you ask the question, if Christianity were true, would you become a Christian? And they hesitate or say no, the problem isn't here, the problem's here. So you could give them apologetics all day and they don't care. In fact, I can't see the audience, so you guys are going to have to help me with this. I always survey audiences, and I want to survey you guys for just a minute. I want everybody in there who's a Christian right now to think of somebody you know who's not a Christian whom you'd like to be a Christian. Has everybody got somebody? All right. Yes. yes. Here's my question. By the way, I can only see like empty chairs with this computer. Yeah, What's that's, the deal? Is there, like, are there other people in that room? <laughs> that's the very back of the worship center. I promise there's like... A hundred thousand people in here. Well, turn that turn that thing around so I can see people. What's going on, Michael? He I'm wants to like see everybody. Chairs that say can you reserved. Turn that, can you turn that around so he can see? And there's is that nobody possible? reserved. 
There's nobody in those chairs. I see one person now. Well, uh -oh. forget it. It's uh -oh. no big deal. All right. I can't see, but you guys can tell me what the results of the... Uh, you guys can tell me the results of the... Here's my question about the people, the, the person you're thinking of. Is the person you're thinking of... Oh, hang on. We got a poor connection. Can you see me? Can you hear me? We can All hear right. you. Is the person you're thinking of on a relentless pursuit of truth? They want to know if Christianity is true. Or... Are they apathetic or maybe even hostile? All right. How many people say the person I'm thinking of, thinking of is on a relentless pursuit of truth? Raise your hand high. I can almost guarantee you if, if there's one or two, that's a lot. There's probably nobody with their hand up. Yeah, there's very few. Very few. Okay. Next question. How many, uh, or how many people say the person I'm thinking of is apathetic or hostile? The majority. Yeah, of course, the majority. Why? People aren't interested in truth. They're interested in happiness. And so what can you do to get them interested in truth? You can love them. You can stay in their lives and maybe plant some seeds. And at one point, something's going to happen in their lives. And then your phone's going to ring and they're going to ask you a question because they're not going to call their atheist friend when something bad goes happen. If something bad goes wrong, they're just going to say, well, this kind of stuff happens, right? So I would say... Um, Ask that question, and from a personal perspective for me, I came to faith through evidence because I wanted to know if it was true. And it is very helpful, if you have a doubt, to take that doubt and drive it into the ground by, uh, by trying to get answers to it. It not only helps you personally, but it helps other people who have questions. Amen. Oh, one last thing. If you yes. would, download the free cross-examined app. Two words in the app store. Much of what we've talked about here today is in the quick answer section of the app. So download it. It's free. Two words, cross-examined. Awesome. Dr. Turk, thank you so much for your time, sir. Let's give him a round of applause, everybody. On behalf of everybody here and me personally, thank you so much for your ministry. Yes, sir. Thank you. For your learning, your education, all the time, energy, effort Remember you put Remember to ask Gary it. about snakes. <laughs> thank you, sir. Have All a right, good day. See ya. God bless. Bye-bye.